Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Hi, I'm Karen Sander. This is the Aging Fearlessly podcast and radio program. And today, my guest is an amazing man, and his name is Gunter Swoboda. Now, I met Gunter by chance through some friends, and recently he came on to Story Room Oz, the live event I host in Manly, and he told a story there. And I, I really felt that it was better for me to get Gunter onto a podcast so that we can talk about his book and everything that he does in supporting men. So welcome, Gunter. Thanks, Karen. Lovely to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to it more than you, I'm sure, because I think, you know, <laughs> so, having met you briefly on um, at Story Room Oz, there's so much more that I really wanted to dig into um, that you do. Yep. So can you, can you give us some of your background? Okay, so uh, I'm actually a migrant, came to Australia in 1970 from Vienna, literally grew up around the corner from Ziggy Freud's house. <laughs> it was just a joke in the family. Um, and went, we came straight to the Northern Beaches, so very, you know, as a friend of mine refers to this place, a vanilla uh, culture, and uh, went to the local high school and um, instantly fell in love with the ocean because that's one of the things that I didn't have in, in Vienna. There's there a great river called the Danube, but no ocean. And I took to the ocean, like, you know, literally it was just the thing. So um, it actually took my attention away from being academic because that's what the plan was when I was in Austria. I would, you know, you go to what's called the gymnasium and then university and your career is pretty well set. That all changed for me. So, cut a long story short, you know, basically school for me was, you know, uh, surfing, music, because I played in a band, and girls. That was it. So, you know, my mother used to drill me. And what did <laughs> she shaking say? Your head. Oh, look, was, I've got very good at, at palming her off. You know, how's your work going? You know, you're focusing on the homework. You know, you do it. And I, I, I would never lie, but I found a way of getting around it. I reckon by year 10, she'd figured me out and decided <laughs> not to push me. So I finished the HSC. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. The one thing I was thinking about was marine biology, but that required having a really good ATAR. I didn't exactly score that. That was November. My mother gave me until the end of January to get a job. On the last day of January, on my next to my breakfast plate was an ad. You're now going to join the bank. Oh. So I spent two years in the bank, uh, the bank, uh, bank of New South Wales, which is now West Bank in Avalon which was handy because I could continue to surf. My great fear was that they're going to boast me somewhere like Orange. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with it, Orange. What it meant. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Just there's no ocean. <laughs> so, and that, that was the you know, turning point story that I, I spoke about. I ended up 
disenchanted, didn't know what to do. And then a friend of mine sort of said, come to uni, fell in love with uni. And I knew what I wanted to do. It was psychology. And prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of reading. I was always a really big reader. Comparative religions, philosophy, psychology, history. And this gave me an opportunity to sort of put the whole show together. Graduated, not without a few bumps in the road. Uh, as I said, I was a bit academically challenged. You know, everyone always used to go, he's really bright, but he hasn't got a work discipline. <laughs> well, you've made up for that. <laughs> yes, I think I have. I earned my stripes. And so um, I, I started working with deve developmentally disabled kids and then switched into more community-based work with street kids, gangs, and got into drug and alcohol. That was the core, the core focus for a while. Out of that came... Uh, my interest in post-traumatic stress disorder because I was getting a lot of people referred to me from probation and parole, Vietnam vets and police who were developing, you know, and frontline workers like AMBOs. And I started getting sort of more and more interested in digging deeper about what happens when we, in a sense, begin to psychologically struggle. Mm -hmm. And I, I was having some issues with, with what was going on in medicine and psychiatry, which was really biologically focused and not focused on, you know, situation and the system. Mm -hmm. Because essentially one of the things that I talked about with, with the men that I was working with who had come back from Vietnam, yes, they were often, some of them were wounded physically. They were all wounded psychologically. But the third wound that we never talked about was the moral, the ethical wound. They came back knowing that they really maybe shouldn't have been there, but they were doing their, what they were meant to. So they did the right thing. And then they got punished when they got home, firstly by the community. Mm. I mean, you know, people literally throwing tomatoes at them, booing at them, you know, baby murder, all that sort of stuff. And you can appreciate the consequences that that had on them. And mm. I started looking at this more and more. And then at around the same sort of like mid to late 80s, Stephen Bidolf started making a splash with manhood. And I went to listen to him speak and it really resonated with me. So what came out of that was what I call the first men's movement, which was not exactly a tidal wave. It was a bit more like a ripple in a pond, which eventually stopped because no one kept throwing stones into the pond. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, the other part was, you know, we'd have these great men's weekends where people would go into the bush, get naked, play drums, throw spears, you know, get in touch with the with, with the inner savage, you know, the warrior, yeah. you know. And it, it, it harkened back to the, you know, the romantic era of the noble savage. And my wife put it to me one day and she says, yes, but does it make any of these guys better in relationships? <laughs> And? and I went, well, I can't answer that. Oh. <laughs> Probably not. And it didn't. And eventually, because men traditionally can't organise a piss up in a brewery when it comes to their own social stuff, it sort of died. Oh. You know, it was like it suddenly dissipated. Right. And I kept working with men. You know, I did also a lot of work with couples, I did a lot of work with uh, addictions. But a lot of stuff about parenting, by that stage I was a parent and, and really getting into it. I mean, I loved 
you know, to, to me, one of the highlights was just being home. And I had the opportunity because when I first came out of uni, there was no jobs for psychologists. It was that first recession we had to have. Yep. So, so all those sort of Department of Health jobs got frozen. My wife said, we got to have some money. I've got a career. I'm going back to work. You stay home. And I spent about 12 months at home, you know, being the primary, well, not, you know, shared caregiver with my daughter. Um, and she and I had a fantastic time. Unfortunately, I wasn't exactly house trained. And so <laughs> the stuff that needed to take being taken care of, like, you know, the nappy bucket, the, the laundry from... <laughs> Didn't get done. The laundry was a bit like a biological hazard zone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe if I stayed longer with another child in that mode, they would have condemned the building. <laughs> so, so that created some conflict in the relationship, which we solved. You know, like, you know, my thing's always been collaborative, but, you know, occasionally, you know, couldn't resist my inner, you know, in a sort of uh, activist in a way and going, why should I have to do this on her time? Yeah, <laughs> <Stuff's long. laughs> and then I went, who's the idiot here? <laughs> so my work then started to move along this way where I'm going, hang on a minute. Overall, you know, there's some problems that I'm having because of how I've been raised in this traditional male way. It took mm. a little bit to get there because I was always on the feminist agenda, which fundamentally comes down to equality. Mm-hmm. And I, my my mother was a post-World War veteran girl, basically, growing up in Europe in the middle of Vienna that was getting bombed to the bilio, and she knew what it meant to survive. And so I had this really, really strong role model as a woman who whose attitude was women can do whatever they need to and want to. So yes. you just get that into your head, and we share the space. So to me, that was always a no-brainer, and I couldn't understand, certainly – more so in Australian culture where there seemed to be this really, really strong gender divide. Like you go to a barbecue, the girls would be in the kitchen and the guys would be hovering with a, with a beer around the barbecue flipping meat. Yeah. Quite symbolic, really, but, you know, not practical. I've got another one there. In the surfing yep. world, women didn't surf. Oh, yeah, I've got great stories about that. Yeah, that's another one. But go back to your gender divide. I was only talk well, I was talking about that with um some friends the other day. It's so great now to see these young girls with a surfboard under their arm running down the beach and pushing off into the waves and really embracing surfing where my teen years you did not go into the surf. You sat and you watched from the bank. Yes. And then you had to give him the towel. Remember Purity oh. Blues? Yeah. That was oh. like, that was so true. So I interviewed Kathy Lett last year. Right. So she's one of my podcasts, absolutely fabulous interview on HRT, husband replacement therapy, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the gender divide, women one side of the barbecue, men the other. So I found that peculiar because I got on really well with girls and women. And, in fact, tried to teach one of my girlfriends how to surf. And, you know, she was keen, except I got flack from the guys in the lineup, and she could never get in on the lineup. my case. So eventually, <laughs> yes, and she she eventually just gave up. Yeah. She stopped. She said, I'm not doing this. 
So wind the clock forward again. I understood what feminists were about because we were doing a lot of that at university. And I'm sort of still grappling with the thing. Why, why should this be an issue? We should just be equals. And then learning about, you know, the pay gap. And, and I was watching men treating women in, in public areas, like in the pub and, and so on. And I went, there's something fundamentally wrong here. And started following down the track about how we as boys grow into men. And I realized that the, the feminists are actually right. You know, they're talking about patriarchy. But most men can't spell the word, let alone actually talk about it in any depth. So, and I, you know, we're getting better. So take it from my point of view, as an evolutionary process, a developmental process. And so a lot of the guys, even the ones that I was at uni with, saw feminism as this sort of rank thing that's undermining society. And that, that's a problem. And it was, instead of getting better, it actually got worse and worse and worse. And part of the work that I came to was that we need to look at how we raise boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And patriarchy fundamentally is an ideology that we socialized with. And mm-hmm. most of the stuff that we talk about, which is supposedly masculine, is actually a social construct. Gender is a social construct. And I really get annoyed when I hear academics, including in my profession, talk about sex and gender almost interchangeably. They're very they're different. Sex is XXXY chromosomes. That's sex. Gender is what we make of it. And if I want to go to work in a two-piece suit and skirt... I should be able to do that. It's got nothing to do with who I am as a male, but, you yeah. know, I mean, that's really frowned on. Some of the comments that I get is I'm, I'm trying to turn men into pussies. I always like that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or the other one, which is more academic, is you're trying to feminise men. And then you get the other group who goes, men need to get in touch with their feminine sides. So that's the sort of Jungian stuff like Jordan Peterson's into. Yeah. And I'm not into that. To me... Fundamentally, the, the the evolution is towards being a good human being, a great human being. I don't care about the sex. Yeah. And whatever you want to make of what is gender is culturally defined. Mm. Mm. Even from this interview, you're going to get probably calls about, oh, this guy's talking through, you know what, blah, blah, blah. I, I really don't care. <laughs> this is an area that needs to be both semantically and theoretically well examined because we haven't done that. So one of my questions was how has feminism really changed or affected men? Oh, how many volumes have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, it could be really simple. It should be not at all. But it is. But the reality is it's thrown us for a loop. Even those guys who embrace feminism, and I get a lot of guys go, you know, I'm a feminist, and I go, look, I appreciate what you're saying, but, you know, I'm a humanist. I don't care what gender you are. I love the one you're with, you know. I've not actually thought of it that, you you know, like to be masculine, feminine, humanist. It's... um. I like it. Thank you. 
But isn't that what we really alter? You know, like, you know, in when we talk about race, when you cut me, do I not bleed red? You know, it's yeah. like, why should there be this difference about what we believe a man should look like and do and a woman should look like and do? I don't want a 1950s wife. Yeah. You I don't want, want someone that comes I'm, home and what what's wrong with the, the cigarette and the slippers on and the drink in the hand while dinner's cooked? Yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, I would have completely and utterly failed as a 50s wife. You and I, our generation, have seen so many changes. Mm. I've never married, so I would have been mm. the old spinster. Mm. You know, a man can be a bachelor, and it sounds amazing. A woman is a spinster. Yep. She missed out big time. What's wrong with her? It's one of those words yep. that you... Yes. really hate you go back to the Jane Austens and those 100 200 mm-hmm. years ago oh my mm. god to be left on the shelf as a spinster was <laughs> I know was but it has even broader implications it has broader implications so if we look at that in terms of sex right now not sex as the biological gender but sexual relationships so guys if they have multiple sexual partners are studly Yes. Women are sluts. If I asked a man today, how many women have you slept with? And he said 700. And you t- yeah. he turned around and said it to you. He'd be horrified. Absolutely. It's there's a, still this bias. Yeah, there is. And that's what I talk about, the subtlety of patriarchal indoctrinational socialisation. Our boys will be boys. Now, feminism had to make a political or systemic statement there was no other way to do it for a start you know 200 years ago when mary wollstonecraft put the notion in that we should educate girls the way we educate boys which was a really controversial idea at the time and horrified men and it got worse you know now suddenly women were educated and they wanted to participate in the politico economic and social landscape and men are going well i don't think so and they literally killed they killed women for it. And, and a lot of women who nowadays, like Julie Bishop, go, I'm not a feminist, completely undermine the egalitarian humanistic project of actually men creating space for women to be able to step in as equals. Um, I want them to vote. I want them to participate economically. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, even the Spartans had a more equitable arrangement. Yeah. The rest of the Greeks were not so good, but the Spartans <laughs> had it together, partly out of necessity, because when you spend half your population on the battlefield, how are you going to get the rest of the society to hold together? The women had to step up. Your book, Making Good, good Men, Men great. great. Firstly, what a title. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. I was going to ask I'm glad you. you like it. I was going yeah. to ask you how you came up with such a great name. It was actually not me entirely. I was I was actually brainstorming this with a with a, like a business coach, ah. um, and we were tossing a couple of things around, and and he sort of goes, "You're actually about making men great," and from there we went, "Good men great," and we just went, "Wow, that's really got a ring to it." Can I tell you a little story here? When I wrote my book, Aging Fearlessly, well, first of all, I wanted to write a book that they printed in blue for a blueprint for women. (laughs) 
Someone told me that. <laughs> Someone told me the cost of printing in blue and said, well, get that one out of your head, Karen. But I was having yeah. a dream yeah. at the time because this was 2014, I wrote it. And mm. I had a $1.50 scrapbook from Woolies and I used to just write words all over the page and I'd talk to people, you know, I knew it was going to be ageing, but I didn't know, you know, ageing yeah. gracefully has been done so many times, yeah, ageing yeah. disgracefully even more than gracefully. And event, yeah. I don't know where fearlessly ever came from, but somewhere well, on those doodles. Yeah, I love it too. It, it's because, you know, when it, you know, people sort of say, you know, hate, aging or had getting old and yep physically we need to accept some of it but you got it you know if you get to this age like i'm in my early 60s you're gonna have some you know shoots by here you know because it's not easy because you got to accommodate not only the physical side but the social side yeah you know and i think it's worse for women because at a certain point and my supervisor in psychology evelyn once said you know i've reached the invisible age and i went what do you mean and she said, well, she says, I can walk now into a shop and no one notices me, whether that wasn't the case when I was 20. And I think their thing, in, invisibility in women is something we talk about all the time. And, you mm. know, it, it is a hard thing um, for some women to work their way through. I mean, I just stand up and do it. You know me, you're getting to know me. I'm pretty yep. out there. I just get up and do it. And... I'm yep. wrong a lot of the time, but I'll give it a go. And I think that's what it's all about. And exactly. And I think I think for men, that's also important because a lot of us as men, again, are, are socialised to, to have a role, okay? So you're either a tradie, corporate, teacher, da-da-da-da. Yep. And then suddenly at some point that role vanishes, you know, like you get retrenched, you get retired, you know, and then what? And because we've not been socialised into relating to ourselves as a rounded human being, but rather as this, you know, the, the provider or the hunter or whatever it is, you know, the warrior, when we can't step into that role anymore, when we, it's inappropriate to be in that role, we're lost. And that's mm. one of the things that's been, you know, an issue with men trying to cope with feminism. Mm. Feminism isn't the problem. It's our incapacity or our unwillingness or both to be flexible enough to go, hey, the landscape's changed. And one of the reasons why you use surfing and as, as an analogy is that one of the things surfing teaches you is you've got to be nimble on your feet. Otherwise, you keep eating it. This world now is in every aspect moving quickly and you have to adapt mm. to change all the time. COVID right now, is one of the biggest changes mm -hmm. we've ever had to in our lives. Many, mm. Maybe not people, you know, the men and women who were involved in the Vietnam War, they saw big changes. So there's plenty of them still mm. around. But for many of us, yeah. our particular age, this is the first massively big kick in the guts we've seen. I want to call it a kick in yeah. the guts. Cause, but it's making us think differently. And we're all, yeah. how, how else can we manage it? But let's go back to... Your book, How to Make Good Men Great, you've got a title going. Yep. That's probably came down the track. Tell us more about that book. Okay, so essentially what I wanted to do is bring together, you know, the ideas of what's what's dispositional, what's in our nature, 
and then how we've been nurtured. And, and one of the important things is we can't understand gender, especially this, we can't understand what it is that we do as men without understanding the situations we're in and the system. And the system's patriarchal. The way capitalism's been forced to evolve is patriarchal. And neoliberalism's has forced it into an even tighter corner in a sense. One of the reasons why we're seeing such an uprise of essentially fascist ideas and the strongman politician. The boys club's still at work. Uh, I'm not sure if you watched Annabelle Crabbe's program no. on Misrepresented. No. Must see. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, it should be just compulsory viewing because it shows up who's leading us for what they are, which is a bunch of boys who are nepotistic and they don't want women to partake in it. It's as simple as that. The situation with Porter is a classic example. It's a slap in the face of any sense of equality or accountability at a political social level. Mm. So I went through the book and went, okay, let's, let's look at some of the core concepts. And what I did was I came up with a definition for patriarchy, which was on based on values. So the core values in patriarchy is being territorial because yeah. it originates from the agricultural revolution. You got a patch of land, you tilled whatever you got out of the land, you owned, except that quickly evolved to strong men muscling their way in, creating a hierarchy wherein they would get others to work for them. Right? So women couldn't partake as effectively in the agricultural revolution because the level of upper body strength that's required to pull a plough and, and guide a plough in agriculture doesn't come naturally physiologically to women. You need fairly brawny guys really to do that effectively. Also, you had the issue about child rearing and the fact that agricultural dominance means that you're going to have a legacy that you want to leave to somebody. Who do you leave it to? Your offspring, mm -hmm. right? So now that became an issue in terms of boys inherited the yes. land. Girls didn't. Yep. Girls and women now became a possession to be traded. So we're talking a history of about 10,000 years. So I went into that. Right? A lot of people don't understand that. Hunter-gatherers are a much more egalitarian group. So territoriality. The next bit was hierarchy. I know Jordan Peterson talks about hierarchy as if it's a natural thing. In fact, if we were truly hierarchical as human beings, we'd be extinct. Because the thing that got us through in our early days of our evolution was the capacity to cooperate. I mean, you try to take down a, a woolly mammoth on your own and you, you'll be roadkill. But five, sure. 10, 15 hunters, including women, and we have anthropological evidence for that, no problem. Just get the hell out of the beast, run it off a cliff, and then we all get down and we take it apart and we have food for, you know, a long time. We have other resources and so on. But the shift into the agricultural and urbanised landscape meant the capacity to begin to dominate and splinter the society, the culture into classes. Uh-huh. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. So, uh, you know, our old mate, the Babylon Hammurabi, then decides to codify, so lays down laws. And in those laws, they were the first laws that segregated women 
away from the commercial enterprise. They weren't allowed to run businesses, really. They had certain, um, there were certain positive aspects for women, but inherently, you know, they had to be veiled. So the Muslims aren't the culture that came up with that. That's a traditional Middle Eastern concept and a patriarchal concept. Women in Greece were veiled. Roman women were veiled. I was unaware and it's of essentially that. Yep. about It's about modesty. Egyptian women weren't. I mean, Egypt, Egyptian gender relationships were actually fairly egalitarian. I mean, yeah. Egyptian women used to divorce their husbands a lot of time, often for things like being slovenly. So they would go from hierarchy and then we become acquisitional, okay? So we need more territory. You know, we need to acquire power and status, which is the hierarchy, right? And that means we must be competitive. So these four values became core. Right. And I'm going, if we operate purely on those four values, we're always going to be in trouble. Now, the democratic process through the process of feminism focused much, much more on becoming inclusive. Yes. Becoming democratic and respectful of differences rather than expecting everyone to be the same. Right? And I, I, I talk about you know, in-group similarities and differences as well. I mean, one of the big things, and when I was a teenager, you know, we all wore, you know, either Levi's or Anko jeans, preferably faded, right? <laughs> Adidas shoes, if you wore shoes. Yes. Winter Ugg boots were good. And you had a white T-shirt. There were no labels. We didn't have labels. Yes. I remember a group of mates and I sitting on the headland one morning wondering how we can exploit surfing to make a living out of it. And one of the guys came up and he goes, we should make clothes and put labels on them. And we all killed ourselves laughing. You know, what an idiot thing to say. He's going to wear a T-shirt with a label on it. And now look what happened. Bingo. What year do you think it was that labels uh, actually started to appear on clothes? I'm going to guess around... 76. Yeah, it was around late 70s. <clears throat> and it coincides. Now, I don't know whether there's a correlation between this, but I, I've thought about it because I like delving into history. It started to coincide with the neoliberal agenda. That is that we're going to free up, you know, the, fr the free enterprise marketplace. You know, wealth's going to, you know, we're going to make it easier for the rich to get richer and then it's going to trickle down. And it didn't happen. What actually happened is it accelerated a process of, it, it was like just releasing the hounds for billionaires. So now we, we have a space race that's run by private billionaires who contribute very little financially to the community because they don't actually really pay real tax. And you look at people even like Trump, when you look at Trump and his failed businesses and his money, he fits into that whole, he's one of those. The branding. Yeah. <laughs> it's about, it's not about substance, it's about brand. And I don't have a problem in a sense with brand. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm an Apple devotee from way back, but it's a good product, right? It has, there's some flaws in the marketing of it, but it's, it's solid in a sense. Yeah. It has value. But so much of this branding stuff doesn't have depth, doesn't have quality, doesn't have substance. And so we go back to the values. What sort of values do we want? Well, we also want, in a sense, to be more distributive, both individually and community-oriented. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we struggle these days to get young people to volunteer into charities, especially young men. 
And so it's not just, you know, people complain about paying taxes, but in a, in a democracy, the taxes aren't because the government, this is about community. How are we going to pay for education? How are we going to pay for, you know, the medical services, all sorts of stuff, right? And we have this extraordinarily narrow perspective on what should be more a relationship between individual and community. Mm. And the top of the tree is living in a society as a as a man where I can collaborate, I can cooperate, not just with other men, but with all the different people in the community. It's not not I'm happy to be competitive in a sport, but when it comes to actual community living, it shouldn't be about competition. And Alain de Bouton talks about status anxiety. And it's one of the issues that's you know men are trying to struggle with, particularly since the advent of feminism, is because they feel like this status, you know, they're being replaced in some way. They're being sort of squashed down. That's not what this is about. When it comes to, you know, financially, and a lot of women that I know are the breadwinners in families, and quite often that's led to dire consequences that their relationships mm. have fallen apart it's a yeah, fact. because again you know the sort of the, the way that we as boys and men are socialized makes us relatively inflexible i'm the provider and we feel bad because other men go what can't you get a job but i can also tell you that other women will do the same thing to men if a guy goes you know, I'm the primary carer at home and I do the housework and blah, blah, blah. One of the first things a lot of women will ask him is, can't you get a job? Yeah, I do. I'm well aware of that happening. Or, or don't you like working? Yes, that's there's the another one. one. Don't you like working? Or, you know, what do you yeah. do all day at home? I, I think there's a lot of questions yeah. that, but I, I know a lot of men these days who have been house husbands for a couple of years and, like yourself, really enjoyed it. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that, and that number's growing, but there is still a stigma. A friend of mine in New York was telling me a story about a young sort of lawyer when young. He was a lawyer in a, in a firm, and they were um, offering him a partnership. Anyway, between offering the partnership, his wife gets pregnant. So he goes into his boss, who proudly declared to the business that, you know, they're instituting paternity leave. Right. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll, I'll make use of this. So he goes in, says his boss, and says, look, uh, you know about this paternity leave? My wife's gotten pregnant and I want to take it. Right? The boss leans back in his chair, folds his arm and goes, well, in that case, the partnership's off the table. So he lost out completely. Well, not entirely because the young guy got up and went, well, in that case, I'm resigning as of now. And... The story goes on that he established a law firm wherein men are encouraged to take paternity leave. Ah, so he stepped right out of his own comfort zone and gave it back to them. Yep. And that's what, that's where I go, that's great. That's what makes him great. Women have a, a way that they can just manage to talk and open up and discuss what's going on in their lives. You think about the hairdressers and the hairdresser knows absolutely <laughs> everything that's going on in my yeah. life by the time yeah. 
I leave there and I know what's going on in her life. She's like the psychologist. Men do find it really hard to open up or to talk about feelings, emotions. How can men deal with that better or what can we do to help men? Well, when we bring up boys and, you know, we need to acknowledge and validate their feelings a lot more. And this is a message to both mothers and dad. Telling a a five-year-old that, oh, you know, yep, you're falling over, that's okay. But, you know, you can stop crying now isn't helpful. So what should they say to them? They should give the kid a hug, pick him up. Do you want me to kiss it better? It's okay okay to cry. The pain will stop. So we need to be more succinct about emotionally coaching children. Mm -hmm. So it starts way back. That's one. Oh, absolutely. The Jesuits used to talk about, give me the boy before the age of seven and I'll give you the man. And they're actually spot on. Because that first seven years is fundamentally critical to raising a child that's emotionally in tune with themselves, feels secure in its attachment with people and themselves, and will orientate towards those people where he's, he knows or she knows that they love them unconditionally. So when your peer group gives you a really hard time about, oh, you know, you're you're this, that, or the other, they can go home and go, they're a bunch of idiots, instead of descending into the depths of despair because the peer group doesn't love them. Parenting, obviously everyone is unique when it comes to parenting, but there aren't enough courses in how to parent these days. I think I can speak about people I know that, they just bury their head in the sand when it, and they think they know how to do it. Yet mm. it's a hard yeah. thing to parent effectively. It is and it isn't. If you're empowered, like I'll speak for as a, as a male, right, yes. who's shed the dominance and control number that comes with being patriarchal, I'm going to be more emotionally in tune. Now, that's not the whole idea of there being a maternal instinct. It's just the mythology. It's not true. And we've got animal studies to demonstrate that and so on. The other thing is that as a male, testosterone isn't the thing that's going to make me highly aggressive. In fact, when we as men have a a lack of testosterone, that's often the thing that makes us aggro because we feel like there's a black cloud hanging off. We're irritable and our libido's out the door. We're not really clear about what's going on there. So we're cranky and it's a bit like little chihuahuas. We start snapping at everybody. You know, when you, you've got a good relationship with yourself, you don't need testosterone in buckets, but you need some of it. And when you've got enough of it, you're actually quite content. You know, the sun shines brightly and other people are really nice and I don't have to feel threatened. But it's not just about testosterone, and that's the problem, is that women often go, oh, well, it's just boys, you know, he's got a lot of testosterone. What's that got to do with it? You know, and in fact, my experience is that often boys need a lot more nurturing right throughout from zero to 18 or 20 than girls do. What about the boys in their teens? They get this habit of grunting. They really struggle to communicate. That's because they've somewhere detached from their attachment in the family. Uh, you, yeah, it's like, how was your day? Ugh. Yeah, they don't want to talk to you. 
Now, that frequently happens because the dialogue in and around the teen is about, have you done your homework? Is that project finished? Did you do your chores? Your room's a mess, right? But has anyone sort of given him a hug and say, oh, really nice to see you. How's your day? Come and, come and have a cup of tea. I'll make you a sandwich and we'll have a chat. If that happens from child, like mid-childhood onwards, I really want to hear about your day, that's going to carry on into adolescence. He's going to come home and go, oh, Charlie was such an idiot today. You know, he keeps picking on me. And it's like, it's, oh, okay, um, that's really interesting. It's really a bit about the art of conversation with your kids, isn't it? And not just picking out the stuff that you want done, but actually sitting down and having a conversation. You know, Absolutely. As a family even and sitting... <laughs> I, I really enjoy listening to some of my friends whom I think have pretty good parenting skills, you know, asking their kids about what they enjoy about their day and, you know, what are they grateful for? I mean, I think more and more people are asking about what are you grateful for? Because uh, we tend to overlook what is good in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> we tend to go yes. to the negatives really quickly. And, yeah, yeah. But, you know, just sitting and having those conversations about your day. I mean, I used to be a teacher and, God, I've made every mistake in the book as a teacher. Would I do it differently now? Absolutely. Yeah, one of the things that I often talk about is that you have no influence over anybody, let alone kids, unless you have a relationship with them. Mm. And, you know, when I was at schools, the subjects that I did well in, because there were a few, I, I can I can tell you it wasn't because of the topic or the subject. It was because of the teacher and I having a good relationship. Funny, I was watching a movie the other day and I know I'm pretty, it reminded me of teaching and it was um actually it was a Barbara Streisand movie and she was a lecturer. The way her classes were, everybody was engaged. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if your teachers really, really just told stories? And I'm going mm. into the storytelling thing because you remember mm. stories and teaching through stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I remember a guy when I was at Armadale Teachers College, David Rummery, and I used to love going to his lectures on literature. And I never took notes. I could just sit yeah. there because he was so engaging with the way yeah. he told a story. It was just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so that we, element... In the home, in the family home, is missing. I work with boys who can't even tell you exactly what their father does. Oh, he works for ASIO. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a secret. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of, it's, they don't often have those discussions. And, and it's becoming, you know, a lot of kids don't sit around a family dinner table. They're off into their room. And, and as a teenager, often parents will go, oh, no, it's a real problem. But he makes it really difficult. And I go, I want... yes, but if you stick to it from an early age on, it's just the routine in the house. So these days, you've just made my mind click into something else and they're off into their room, you said. And I go, they're off into their room to get onto the computer and game. How yeah. do parents yeah. deal with those issues? And moving, you know, young women and men, teenage boys and girls, to move into healthy, well-adjusted adults. Again, I'll come back to that thing about attachment within the family unit. And a lot of that 
certainly with boys, is in their relationship with their father. And it's not just about I'm taking him surfing or bike riding or whatever. It's actually engaging him in that relationship building, the real you know, sharing of what's going on for me rather than this usual topic about sport, politics, money, or, you know, are you in trouble at school? It's got to be deeper than that. And it's about learning from dad how to express your feelings and how to talk about it, how to regulate those feelings. And then also tell stories. You know, what was it like when you were a kid? The teenagers that I work with often ask me about, oh, what do you know about gaming? And I say, well, (laughs) do you remember the game called Pong? (laughs) <laughs> they go, and some of them are good because they're right into it. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Well, we used to code onto a cassette deck. Do you know what a cassette deck is? No. It's like a tape, a magnetic tape that's inside a cassette. And, you know, usually we Google it and then, you, oh, wow, okay, right. And you code on that, yeah, six, 64 bytes. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, you now need a terabyte to do anything reasonable. Yeah, and, they, and they, so so they connect. And I mean, I'm not against gaming per se. I am against excessive gaming. Like I'm I'm against excessive anything. And yeah. part of that is learning from parents about regulating behaviour. And part of that's going, okay, this is when I start work. This is when I finish work. And the rest of the time is engaged with friends, family, social stuff you know, connection, human connection. But we're so disconnected despite all this connecting technology, it's not funny. And there's this loneliness, this isolation. And this is one of the problems with COVID, with the lockdowns. I was just about to say to you that I think having a diary that allows you the free time and the family time and that I think a lot of employers expect that you're there 24-7, especially with emails. Why didn't you answer that email when I sent it two hours ago? Well, perhaps the answer was I was talking to my son. He had an issue or we're expected to be there all the time. But I think planning your days, your weeks, your weekends so that it's balanced. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, our economic system, which is based on patriarchal values, discredits anything that doesn't fit into it. So now, if you want to be successful in your career, you need to be competitive. So how do you do that? Well, you have to outpace every other sucker on the block, except it's a rigged system. It's like comparing apples with oranges. And the fact is, you've employed me for X number of hours, really. Otherwise, I get benefits. Like, for example bonuses and superannuation packages and various other lurks and perks. Now, interesting, that happens for a sector of the social hierarchy, but it doesn't apply to 98% of the rest of the population. Mm. Why is it that we have a gig economy? That means people got to work three jobs to get even close to one salary, and then they're not eligible for loans, so they can't actually participate effectively within the economic structure of the community. Well, Gunta, I know that the work you do is really amazing. I, As I said, I love the title and I love the, all that you're doing with making Good Men Great. And I'd love to come back and one day we actually meet in the studio. I asked you to choose a few songs today and I, I actually forgot to ask you because <laughs> yeah. I was madly listening on, to the conversation and the, you know what you were sharing yeah. with us today. And... If people want to get hold of you, how do they find you? I'm, I'm pretty easily accessible on the internet. 
I Google Google my name and it's there. It's like I, I get a lot of people coming to see me simply because they someone told them about me and they find me on the internet. Well, Gunter Swoboda, honestly, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and I know that we've got so much more to chat about and we will at some stage. Well, thank you for joining us on Aging Fearlessly. And we'll have to get to the what's it like to age as a man fearlessly and healthily. Oh, I would love to. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm writing that down now. So um, we'll, we'll get yeah. back to that one in a couple of weeks. But for now, cheerio, everyone. And until next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in It's not all nine to five, it's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high, swim across oceans wide. Live out our dreams, just you and me. Let your heart be alive. There's no time to Gotta go get the most out of time Don't be afraid Like this treasure that you've got to find Baby, don't be shy Let's go and take that ride Taste the sweet and the spice Everything nice Let your Let your heart come alive, honey Let your heart be alive